Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Jazz Goldman and I just went to Pride. Jazz is a friend of mine, occasional sex partner, professional cuddler for Cuddlist, all about the performing arts, and all about community building. And I suppose I should mention their intersex. Jazz and I have in common both being some flavor of gender non-conforming and also being mixed-race humans. In Jazz's case, they are Black and Jewish, and in my case, I'm British and Indian. Very, very different backgrounds, and yet the experience of being a, quote, third culture, end quote, human has its similarities. Jazz is, most importantly, a sexuality intellectual. We sometimes get lost on tangents because we both find each other and what we're saying so interesting, even when we're off topic, so please do bear with us. Speaking of being off topic, back on topic, did I say we were two mixed race queers of color at Pride? (laughs) Well, it turns out some queers, especially queers of color, have strong feelings about Pride sometimes, and we want to present some thoughts that might currently be less common in the mainstream narrative of what Pride is and why it's important. At the same time, we want to remain as polite and kind as possible to current organizers, as, to be perfectly honest, I think Pride still fills a very important role or niche And I don't want to get into it personally here, because we'll get into it in the episode. There's also a lot of information in the written description of the episode, because Jazz mentions the Pink Triangle, Jazz also mentions Erica Hart, and we talk a little bit about racism in Canada and relationships with Indigenous folks, and I cite some statistics, um, such as the 98% of all incarcerated girls, all girls in custody in Manitoba are Indigenous even though Manitoba's total population is only 15% Indigenous. So statistics like that you can find um, at Statistics Canada, and I post where you can go, and I post some news articles that break it down to make it more accessible and easy for you. So I just wanted you to know I'm not pulling statistics out of my ass. I'm actually going to cite all my sources, so feel free to check out the description. Awesome. Let's get to the episode. Oh, wait, I almost forgot. Um, At the end of the episode, Jazz and I have a blast while Jazz sings about 20 seconds of their cover of Lizzo's Juice. I've included it for your enjoyment, and now we can actually go to the episode. Enjoy. You're just going to keep saying how good pudding is. So good. The pudding. So I take it you like pudding a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I also appreciate the giggle snort. It don't usually happen so often. Well, it's almost like you like me or something. Don't make me blush. That forward. There you go. Yeah, so I don't shoulder it in the middle of talking and make uh, a horrible also, sound. Also, so that if you laugh and like double over like that, I'll still be able to get the adorable little things you say as you're like blushing. So I guess I should welcome everyone to a new session of Intimate Interactions while I'm at it and introduce you, Jazz Goldman, a sex educator, professional cuddler for Cuddlist, someone who's all about community building and the performing arts. <laughs> and of course, you're a yogi as well. Correct. This is, this is my life. So I wanted to chat about Pride today because we just had Pride weekend here. I wanted to ask the question that I know you like answering, which is when talking about events, who is this for? So who is, and and I want to be clear that I'm talking about pride events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who do you think pride, like as a month is for like pride month? Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's sort of split between being for cis gay men which is like a standard and 
an expectation that we kind of have that the face of gayness is a cis man. Mm -hmm. But um, at this point, I honestly think it's for straight people to feel good about themselves or something like that. Right. Like it's, it's basically just um, a publicity stunt for corporations to show that they are welcoming and inclusive mm -hmm. and, and uh, by extension for the public to feel that they are participating in that spirit as well, which in theory sounds nice, but in practice feels really different to me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it, when I go to pride now, it doesn't, feel like I'm surrounded by my people necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like it's for me anymore. It's for the other people who are at Pride, which are corporations and, and allies. I shouldn't just say straight people. Allies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because there are definitely a lot of straight people that don't go to Pride. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Like, and I think it's actually like worth noting and that it's actually kind of a win that the people we're complaining about now are not the people that are like necessarily obviously homophobic or like obviously or aggressively anti-queer they're more like the i almost use the phrase well-meaning white liberal <laughs> but like they're they're the well-meaning liberals that, that don't necessarily have any experience of what queerness is like and maybe still don't have a very broad idea of what queerness looks like for a lot of people living it mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah. Cool. I think for me, when I went specifically to the Gay Men's Pride Parade, that's the really big Pride event in Vancouver that just gets called Pride now, which kind of answers the question, who is Pride for, fairly well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when I felt less sure of my queerness, I felt more like the Pride Parade was for me. And when I was on floats and going to Pride... I felt like I blended in with allies really well. And at a certain point I started having queerer sex and started expressing my gender in a more like queer, in, in a more visibly queer way. So I went from having like an internalized experience of like, oh, I have some queer thoughts and feelings and like, yeah, I'm kind of a baby queer and like exploring this and what this means to me. And that kind of transitioned at some point to like, yeah, I'm not afraid to call myself queer anymore. <laughs> I don't feel like I need to prove it to myself. And it became more about hanging out with the queers that I knew rather than like showcasing the queer that I was. Yeah, just being a queer in the masses sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That, that actually, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it reminds me of my early days in Pride experiences. And I started fairly early. I'm a lucky person. I grew up in New York City, so I had a lot of access to resources, including the LGBTQ Center on the Lower East Side, mm -hmm. um, which has been around for a long time and had a branch just for youth. Um, and so my first marches were in the parade at like 14 and 15 years old um, with peers my own age. And those those were my favorite experiences. Like you know, in some ways, I probably am chasing the uh, the elation and the exuberance and all of, all of that uh, joy from those first you know three four years that I went. Um, and yeah, because I was a baby queer then. Like, even though I I I knew my identity and was pretty solid <laughs> in it then, though it's changed so much since. Mm -hmm. I. Uh, it was just so great. Yeah, I mean, and and I guess it's it's almost a privilege that we can look, like look at at pride in this way. And there are definitely right. places in the world where it's not like this and where right. the pride parades are still highly politicized in that they are dangerous to exist at all mm -hmm. in a very like immediate Direct, systematized way. Way, yeah, like the danger is near not conceptual like the danger right. is is real everywhere for queer people including in mm -hmm. vancouver including in seattle where i'm currently living but um but you don't get jailed for it 
or jailed on suspicion of it in the same way you might in say Russia or India or right. like, like other people places. aren't getting attacked on mass for being, right. for participating in these events it's not literally illegal and your likelihood of being physically assaulted for it by some other civilian randomly is is very low, low comparatively yeah. mhm mm mhm mm mhm so it's great that that we can have some places in the world that are at this point yeah and yet you know stonewall it was a riot. The first Pride was a riot, and it's not anymore, even though people bring those slogans out, and I love that they do. Stonewall's a riot? Yeah, and that, you know, Pride was a, was a, was a riot, not a parade or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I saw those the other day at right. Pride. Um, Pride was a riot, not a parade. <laughs> yes. I think, you've, I think you've kind of underscored um, the next question. You've actually kind of segued very nicely into it, where I was going to ask, how does a big Pride parade compared to a smaller march or protest like you'd mentioned you'd been to um portland trans march and the seattle dyke march and i was just curious like how um a big parade in new york would compare to those yeah um the smaller marches and parades feel like a community mm. the larger it gets the more it feels like a spectacle mm -hmm. which is I mean, it's it's similar in that it's people communing for a purpose, but there's just like this anonymity to the experience and like being a, you know, a, a grain of sand in the in the beach sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, when I was at Trans Pride in Portland, I felt like I could like talk to people and that I was relating like we were all kind of jovial and conversational and, and chatty. And it was similar for the dyke march in Seattle. Um, I actually wasn't sure I had anyone to march with. I went by myself to the, to the dyke march over there. And it's so intimidating. I, it, 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 I thought it would be, and I was nervous because I'm an anxious person, so I can just be <laughs> that way at will sometimes. But yeah, I, I, I was fine. I, I was fine. I was looking around. There were families. There were, you know, it just felt, it, it felt neighborly. And um, the Pride event we went to the other day didn't. Mm -hmm. It felt like, I know I said spectacle already. I'm trying to think of a better word than that. Um, performative. There we go. That's... I, I thought it was perform performative. Yes. And the thing that felt performative about it for me wasn't the queers, of course, because like, yeah, I mean, you're queer. It's Pride. Be queer. But like... I always try and ask myself, like, why am I choosing to exist in this space? Right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm non-binary. <coughs> could I go to a dyke march? I mean, eh, I could. Should I go to a dyke march? I have to ask myself the question, was that space made for me? And, and what purpose would it serve? Would I get benefit out of it? How, how does this benefit me? And how how is me accessing a space or resources impacting a community? And when I saw, and so, oh yeah, so to finish that thread, so I wouldn't go to a dynamics, <laughs> Yes. Um, because I don't think it's reasonable for whatever degree of my non-binary gender. <laughs> I, I don't think it's reasonable under any stretch to call myself a dyke. Um, but the point that I was trying to get at was the notion that um, performing sexuality in a space or performing gender expression in a space um, or being, um, oh, such a hard point to make. I'm trying to get at the straight people who are kissing in an obviously straight way at pride. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at. And I have no problem with that. <laughs> it, except when they've got like, it's like the little rain, it's like the little touch of rainbow that they got at the parade itself. Yeah, it's, it's like, like they, they, go to the they get to flag as queer without realizing any consequence for it and then discard it at the end of the day. Yes. Like, that was fun. I got to play yes. in the gay space yes. for the day. I love the gays. Woo! It you just know, feels like, like a fucking petting zoo sometimes. Mm, like, mm. I, I get that sense of objectification that straight people come into the space, put on a splash of queer... And then it's like they're putting on a costume. Yeah. And then they're getting hella drunk. 
<laughs> right? Like stupid amounts of drunk or, or making out or whatever, just doing whatever normative thing they're doing that doesn't ring true as queer for me, for me, which is fine. Like they don't like people who aren't queer don't have to be queer on pride. That's not what I'm saying, but like, come, right. I'm not like, I'm not saying like, if you come, you must do the gay thing. Like, I just mean like, like maybe don't take up more space than you need to be taking up. The whole idea of taking up space is just like, it's such high level stuff for a large swath of the population. You know, I mean, yeah. if you, if you want to go to like more gendered examples, like the whole man spreading phenomenon, you know, like mm -hmm. that's like a literal, just people will take up space mm -hmm. and literally crowd another human being right next to them right. and just not care. <laughs> and for folks making that tired argument about men having external genitals needing to spread their legs, focus on the types of man spreading where men are spreading their arms then you know because that ha that happens too where men will put their hand around an empty seat and just wait for someone to sit in that seat like that kind of bullshit uh -huh, happens uh-huh uh-huh and it's it's just it's no or different like leaning your back against the pole and like oh, oh that whole pole is yours now maybe this is a new york thing but this is like oh, a I massive see. pet peeve for poles in uh public transit because everyone on. needs to hold on to a pole yeah yeah, I mean, and like your your um, sky train. Yeah, <laughs> your yeah, yeah. sky train is <laughs> is um, <laughs> it has four uh, poles in one. Yeah, and I I'm just like this is genius one because it's not comfortable to lean against anymore. Yeah. and there's just more access points for people. Right. and you don't have to touch people's hands and like. But yeah, this whole idea of taking up space. Like, this technology of four poles. Why has New York not <laughs> discovered it yet? Yeah, like why has New York not done massive composting and recycling in public spaces yet either? Like, don't even get me started on those questions. <laughs> but sure. Yeah, this this idea of taking up space, like the fact that you would go through that internal process to be mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah, I'm non-binary, and and technically, dyke identity is like in that spectrum and continuum, like, like sort of technically but, speaking, right, right. but not as as is connected to your personal right. identity. I will say though, um, just to go on a slight language sure, tangent, sure. Uh, the, there's just been a whole opening up of the idea of your identity versus your behavior. Right. And I actually learned this one from Alison Moon, who hmm. name drop her, but you know, name she identifies drop. as a dyke or a lesbian sure. and is also partnered with a cis man. Mm -hmm. And, I just have heard her discussions about how she still feels okay with that identity, although her, you know, romantic intimate behavior reflects more than mm -hmm. just femmes. And so I would say that like that extends to everybody. Sure. And sure. if you're, if we're in this space, in this modern space of having that kind of freedom, it's even more important to look mm -hmm. at, yourself and what space you're taking up um right like if it's your identity i obviously like go to the march and that's the thing like right it's gone from the place where i i, I don't want to police anyone or see gatekeeping where people can't present the way they feel yeah. like when i went out i'm sorry i feel like i totally cut you off there um, <laughs> no go ahead go ahead okay when i went out to pride i didn't feel like dressing up super gay i didn't feel like wearing rainbows Right? Like, I just yeah, wanted to yeah, go as I remember me. You about that. And then the most frustrating part was I was like, oh, but like, it's going to be so crowded with really normatively expressing heterosexual people that people are going to see me and they aren't going to say, there goes a queer man that's dressed just like any other person. Right? They're going to see, like, they're not, they're just not going to see me. Yeah. Whereas, like, if we actually centered queers and only queers were marching, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I would be in that march and it would be very clear that I was queer and not, not, and I don't want to say just an ally, but to some extent that is what I'm saying. Like, mm -hmm. the centering of queerness in what was a riot and is now a parade. But even then, like, if we're going to make it a parade, I think we should celebrate all the best. Like, it, like, it doesn't even matter, like what specific thing is being celebrated let's just celebrate the celebrate the queer folks in that thing so if it's like a polyamory float cool let's make it all queer polyamorous folks mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know what i mean like if it's going to mm -hmm. be a kink float cool let's make it all queer kinksters right and so because long as there's plenty of space for the non-queer kinksters and poly folk 
elsewhere. I mean, maybe not plenty globally sure. speaking, but relatively speaking to sure. to what we're talking about, you know? Right. And the thing is, like, I agree with normalizing different alternative sexual behaviors, like 110%. Please, let's normalize these things. And in the middle of gay pride, like, let's do that through the lens of gay and queer folks who are proud of being gay and queer and also polyamorous or and also kinksters. You know, I think the idea of, yeah, maybe you said this already, but taking up space is just inextricably linked with who is this for? Right. Because it's it's sort of like the perfect paired question to it. Like, mm -hmm. who is this for? Then who are you in relation to that? Mm -hmm. Then how much space should you take up? And that's like a lot of what I feel like you're saying in this like, okay, let's have the allies elsewhere on the sidelines and mm -hmm. let's have the people marching be the people we're supposed to be centering. Totally. Like, let's get the banks mm -hmm. out of pride. Mm -hmm. Unless there's an all queer bank, yeah. you know, or yes. something cool sure. like that. Like, this is a, like, everyone in this branch of this bank is queer. So these are the people who are on the, on the float. Mm -hmm. Really just get the banks out. Like, I don't want to make exceptions for them. But, you know, like, sure. there's a way to do it. <clears throat> well, like, sponsors should be on the flyers. Sponsors should be on the website. I don't think sponsors should necessarily have huge centerpieces. Unless those centerpieces are like, hey, we sponsored this float. And we want to center a whole bunch of queer folks. Right. What do you want to do with this money to build a float? Right. As opposed to a giant billboard of their company, which is, and then I don't even know who walks on those. Like who goes to the march and says, yeah, I want to march on. TD Bank. I just can't see any queer folks that, I mean, I, and, and this is probably just a me thing. I mean, hey, if you love marching on corporate floats, good for you. Like that's <laughs> Watch probably, I probably did when I was a teenager right? in Pride and don't even remember. Sure. I did march with the polyamory uh, group right. two years in a row and it was it was a mixed group, mm -hmm. but there was a lot of straight people in it. And mm -hmm. I remember hearing grumblings and like in conversations about that between people who are organizing and being like, what's the problem? Right, 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 right. <laughs> There's always a, an arc in life, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm glad to be having this perspective today and can look back on things in the past and not be there anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I try not to be as frustrated as I actually am about these things. Yes. But I think it's just, it's... it's <laughs> It's a true statement. Like I'm trying to unfrustrate myself and I hope that having more of like an outspoken open conversation about it will help me process through it. So to a large extent, I feel like that's why this is such a good conversation for both of us to be having. So all of the corporate stuff considered, what positive reasons do you see for queer folks attending the big pride parades? I think if you, this might sound sad, if you don't have a lot of friends, like, it can feel super powerful to be in a space where presumably you're surrounded by queer folk. Like, that may have been a lot of what was so uh, mind-blowing for me in my youth mm -hmm. was because, you know, I didn't really have queer friends until college. You know, I mean, the mm -hmm. kids at the center that I would go to once a week we were friends for the like four hours that we would hang out mm -hmm. but you know we didn't see each other every week and barely saw each other in between mm -hmm. so when i go to pride i was just like my people they're everywhere and like everything that we just described as right. being so performative was like exactly what i needed that's a that's a really good point so it's 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 almost it's almost more like pride is basic now is rudimentary like it it the the things that it that it clings to symbolically are so fundamental and just sort of mm. not necessarily connected to the deep roots and history of the struggle of queer people mm -hmm. um that unless that if you are not connected to the history or if you don't have community, then like that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But if you are, then it's not really going to do much for you. And and like, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, there are other flags that used to be more prominent and prevalent 
in in parades like the Pink Triangle, which has a real cultural and historical significance um, that, I mean, you'll still see them around, but they're not front and center alongside the rainbow. <laughs> Tell me more about the Pink Triangle, because I don't even, I don't really have a lot of knowledge about it. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm going to butcher some history, uh, okay. hopefully not too badly, but the Pink Triangle actually comes from... Uh, the Nazis, and it okay. was a marker for for gay folks as they were being, um, you know, targeted, mm-hmm. and then made its way into modernity, or further modernity, mm-hmm. um, via the AIDS crisis. So oh, my wow. understanding is that the, the triangle symbolizes both, like the second world war and the atrocities of the Holocaust as pertains to queer people and then, um, AIDS. Right. I wish I could say deeper, uh, more detailed sure. history than that. Um, but I believe that's pretty spot on. There were a lot of folks that did die in that sort of first wave where people didn't really know what HIV was and like how AIDS was sort of coming about and it was just affecting a lot of young queers that were all dying and being horribly sick and right and if you think about when stonewall happened and the first big public parades happened in new york city and Mm -hmm. elsewhere and then when aids hit it was much closer together in time right so we wouldn't the the disconnection that we see now is just not just would not have been possible then Mm -hmm. yeah Interesting. So in a sense, like it very much was reclaiming the pink triangle and putting it front and center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's so deeply political mm-hmm. and so important. And it's just not, I don't think those kinds of elements are really carried through in the way that they ought to be, not to ought on things, but you know. Right. And I, I do that too, where I, I have these opinions about like, the pride should be about queer folks. And to some extent, I, I do really strongly feel that. But I guess if Pride becomes a place that straight folks go to reaffirm that homophobia is a bad thing, mm-hmm. then like maybe that is still doing a huge service to queer people. It just seems like there should be two things that happen maybe in tandem. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, if there was a great space slash event that was queer centered in a in a way that, you know, would, would please our <laughs> sensibilities our, as like, we are describing our, here. Like, queer elitist kind of like. <laughs> queer elitist. Yes. Um, if that existed, then perhaps whatever we're seeing now wouldn't feel so weird or like space taking up. Mm-hmm. It would just be that good intention of like, these are our allies and this right. is how they're demonstrating their care and support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose at a certain point, the inclusion of allies was deeply political. Right. Because it was just this event for marginalized people and just for them and nobody cared about it. And then it came to a point where, like, it was significant enough for people who weren't in that identity to show up in some way. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Devil's Advocate's fun. Yeah. Well, (laughs) because in a large way, having a lot of allies march in the parade makes it seem really, really big. Yeah. Like if we got rid of a lot of these sponsors that bring money into the event, if we got rid of a lot of the corporatism, it wouldn't be like a three hour long parade or a five hour long parade. Like it would get smaller and smaller and the turnout would get smaller and smaller. Maybe. I mean, maybe not the turnout. Like it's, it is considered like a really big event in Vancouver and, and a lot of other urban cities as well. Yeah. urban cities in a lot of other urban areas <laughs> greater regional areas <laughs> so i'm curious how that compares to reasons you have for attending say a pride march rather than a parade one of the smaller like trans or dyke marches right well one those feel much more in line to the og purpose of of such events mm-hmm. um so there's a certain sense of credibility to it and like um i'm thinking of infighting but that's not the the right in term i'm looking for um we're talking about inclusivity uh that'll work let's use that word (laughs) it was a hyphenated term i I am blanking on but yeah 
What was it relating to? I've forgotten now. That's okay. I've lost my own train of thought. That's okay. We were talking, I was asking about what reasons originally do you see for queer folks attending a big pride parade? And then I was asking, how does that compare to the reasons you have for attending a smaller pride march? Right. Thanks. I feel like they are more effective protests. I and agree. I, I don't call myself an activist, but I would like to do more things that are in line with those activities and values. So going to a march versus a big old, you know, expensive parade feels more purposeful. And the people there feel different, too. It feels like yeah. we're trying to accomplish something socially that matters with our mm -hmm. presence. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that that happens anyway, just by sheer numbers and people being there with the bigger events. Right. But because of this disposable nature of it, because of the way that it's more or less a party culture event, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and a march is not, even if it's upbeat, even if people are happy when they're marching, which mm -hmm. hasn't much been the case lately that I've witnessed, but conceivably in, in past years when like we didn't have an orange Cheeto destroying things, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. were going out to dyke marches and trans marches and not quite, with not quite the same heaviness to it. Right. <laughs> when there are bigots like that, that stand up and say things that are openly bigoted and, and I think it's, it's hard for folks to understand how harmful that is when those words translate down to the lowest common denominator. And when folks in society hear someone like Trump, for example, saying really like repeating awful stereotypes or saying really damning things, and that translates towards reinforcing and exacerbating hateful attitudes of just like average everyday bigots, you start seeing exactly what we're seeing now, which is an increase in hate crimes towards mm -hmm. queer folks. Mm -hmm. So when you hear someone in a public forum speaking, they're not just exercising their right to free speech, they're actively making our lives a little more dangerous with every word. Mm -hmm. And that shows up in fatality statistics, especially of trans women, especially of trans women of color, mm -hmm. but of queer folks in general. Yeah. And then that's why, to me, the marches feel more important, because they are trying to directly counter that kind of crap. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was at the, when I was at the trans march in, in Portland, mm -hmm. the main chant, which I didn't agree with, but it's still interesting and worth talking about, I hope, was, mm -hmm. um, all cops are bastards. Mm -hmm. That was, and, you know, the reason why I didn't feel great about it is because it was a trans march and I would have loved most of the slogans and cheers or, or not cheers, a chance sure. to be about trans identity. Right. And as we know, and as you were saying, like the culture of violence that we're in is such that police brutality is not able to be divorced from trans identity at this time or queer right. identity. And this was also a protest happening in the United States where the numbers on police brutality are not what they are in Canada. <laughs> like, I mean, we, we don't always have good, like great numbers, but like comparatively, like I look at the kinds of, I mean, and, and maybe this is, maybe this is part of my settler privilege in my instant reaction being to think about the visual media that I've seen, the coverage hmm. of, of black folks and police, which mm -hmm. is typically police brutality and murder, mm -hmm. by which I mean police murdering black folks. Right. Whereas in Canada, we don't get media coverage for things like um, the way that police treat indigenous folks, mm -hmm. which is in many ways very analogous, very similar. Yeah, and it's, it's actually similar too in the States and the same lack of public uh, exposure is, sure. is true. Yeah, like in America, we are much more accustomed to police brutality and black folks, not right. indigenous folks, even though there's, you know, horrifying statistics that are mm -hmm. widely available to show that the experience of indigenous people in some cases, if we're just looking at statistics, is actually worse. Yeah. Um, but was, we don't see that. Right. Yeah. I was looking at um, the, the way that minors get arrested. And I was looking at indigeneity and the statistics there are just like mind-blowingly bad. Mm -hmm. um, especially if you look on the prairies, 
Um, I, I feel like I need to actually go and look up the specific um, stats, but it was like asking the question that like in, 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 you know what, actually I won't go into the numbers because I feel like I need to have them in front of me to mm-hmm. actually look at the numbers, but it was some show notes. I will. Yeah, there'll be, there'll be show notes, but it was, if you think about what percentage indigenous folks are on the prairies, which is less than 50%, mm-hmm. um, it's and, and significantly less than 50%, the, the juvenile detention rates. And I think it's most telling in girls, in juvenile girls, hmm. because there's such a skewed perspective towards girls just being not harmful that they're typically perceived as mostly, I think, harmless. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a certain threshold of crime that it takes before girls tend to get arrested. Mm. Um, but this is all just um, speculation. speculation. Yeah. No, but, I mean. But then the question, sorry. But then the question becomes like, what proportion of arrested juvenile girls? Are indigenous versus every other race, uh-huh, uh-huh. and it's very high. It's high it's, it's very high. Like right. it's it's in the eighties in one province, and mm-hmm. and and in another province, it's like ninety two percent of the boys were were indigenous, and ninety eight percent of the girls were indigenous. And you look at numbers like that, and like it's a pretty convincing statistic when ninety eight percent of the juvenile um, d- detainees for girls are all indigenous, and you know it's not a ninety eight percent indigenous province. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. like that should really say something. And I, I'm typically one to quickly dismiss when people make statistical arguments, because if I'm not looking at a, at a chi-squared test to see whether or not it's significant data, mm-hmm. then I have no idea whether the, what the person's saying is, mm-hmm. is reasonable or not. Mm-hmm. But looking at the numbers where you're trying to, comp- like, it's, it's not even one you would need to do a chi-squared test on because it's such a stark and obvious example. Yeah. Yeah. And the, that's... I've heard similar uh, descriptions of statistics for, for for the United States as well, where you look at the number of black and brown and indigenous people who are in jails or, you know, just have lost access to freedom in a significant way or other. And mm-hmm. then you look at what they, uh, at their numbers relative to the rest of the population. And it just, it just makes no sense. And it's awful. I mean, it's not that it doesn't make no sense. Right. It makes perfect sense. The system <laughs> is working, as they say. Um, the system's not broken. It's working as it was meant to. It's just busted for people who are brown and poor and femme. Yes, yes, <laughs> is, yes. all that. Anyways. <laughs> so the hilariously, the next question was going to be, could you say a little about the exclusion of police from Pride events? Yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, having just chewed off that whole bit about police... Uh, one can then sort of logically jump as to why queer people might not want the police around. And, you know, we can also just talk about Stonewall again for two seconds. Mm -hmm. Stonewall happened because of police brutality. Mm -hmm. The the people who were there (laughs) and fought back were fighting back because they were tired of being arrested for being in bars drinking and being gay mm-hmm. like it was like a driving while black it was a drinking while queer situation like people could literally not just do a legal activity in public and be in their own identity without fear of the police busting them up and yeah. so having the police there now is just it's like spinning in the face of, of those people I, I feel like if they were police protesting police and they were really obviously saying, like, essentially, fuck the police, mm-hmm. or they were obviously saying um, something that was very much in the spirit that originally opposed police brutality, mm-hmm. I think it would be different. Yeah, I don't think they would be allowed to, though. Well, there's, there's like, just no... Like, it's not no... safe as a cop, to, <laughs> even if you believe that, to, to try to take that stance. Right. <laughs> and, and I'm not necessarily saying that they need to oppose police specifically. I just think if anyone needs to really represent the roots of of Stonewall in Pride, it would be the police, I would think, in a very, like, antithetical fashion. Oh, that's like, interesting. Like, if the police want to be included in saying, like, hey, we've come around, it mm. needs to be, like, completely reaffirming that they understand the roots and what they've come around to. Mm-hmm. But I almost don't see how that's possible. <laughs> Yeah, because the nature of policing and, like, the industry of policing would have to change. Industry is not a good word, but that's what I came up with. Yeah. In, in the U.S., it kind of is an industry. At yeah, least prisons are kind of an industry. Yeah, which you can't divorce from policing. So. Right. 
Right. Whereas it's, it's like the police slash prison industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like saying if you have like a fruit orchard industry, they're going to be the people that pick the fruit. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to divorce, you know, this farm from the people the farm chooses to pay and how much the farm chooses to pay those people. Oh God, I'm thinking about how many links there are between policing and farming and how bad they are for us in modernity. Like how the, <sighs> the, cur- the, the, the current day expressions of those industries are really similarly awful and exploitative. Yeah. And, not, and untransparent. I, I see the um, I see the parallels between um, the workers picking the fruit and the police finding people to fill jails to some extent. Um, interesting. I think that works too. But I was actually thinking, thinking about the fact that both um, incarcerated individuals and farmers are underpaid, are basically doing a kind of modern day slave labor. At the very least, I would say, when you say farmers, I would say, like, the pickers. Okay. Like, like the people that work the farms That's rather than, term. like, the people that own the farms or Correct. the people yeah. that, for example, would run a combine harvester. It's not quite the same as slave labor, whereas when you have a lot of immigrants that maybe are working under the table and they're picking fruit and they're getting, you know... Yeah, maybe the better phrase would be the migrant workers. Migrant workers is a great phrase for this, Yeah. 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 So, they're, so get so the police out of pride unless they can get real clear, really clear on why, they're, why there. they're there and why they need to get their asses in gear. And, and for clarity, what we're saying is not that police can't be around at all for those events, but it's the same thing I was saying earlier about centering. I'm saying police should not be in the parade marching, celebrating the police in that parade. Yeah, that's really um, gauche. It just feels very tacky. Yeah, and it's it seems very against the very spirit of what the parade is hopefully supposed to embody. It's like you said originally about straight folks who want to feel better about themselves. Mm-hmm. So they go to a pride parade and go, Yeah, I'm not homophobic and then they like don't examine any of the things that they actually do with say their supervisory position at work yeah. or any of the places where they hold power. They don't think, um, you know, like, how can I be a better ally? Necessarily, maybe they do. Um, but there certainly doesn't seem like there's any requirement to do that. And it, I think my fear is that a lot of allies will come to Pride, try on a costume for a day that doesn't seem very, it, that's, that's almost borderline not respectful in how much I feel like it misses the point for me anyways. Yeah. Yeah, like we could just make an offhand comment about rainbow fro wigs, for example. I won't say more than that, because... Do you want to share any of your identities that might be relevant? (laughs) Yeah, I thought about doing that earlier. Yeah, I am black and Jewish. Caribbean specifically, my mom is Haitian. (laughs) So (laughs) I have a lot of feelings about these kinds of things. And, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. I'm a curly hair. Well, maybe not obviously, I shouldn't say that. First of all, no one can see me and whatever. There's no standards for this, but I have have curly fucking hair. (laughs) Super, not wavy, (laughs) coils of curls. And um, I wore a fro for about... 12 years of my life wow so i have feelings about people who don't naturally have froed hair putting on fake curly hair right um even if it's rainbow colored and i i get that clowns have their own place in that and that's (laughs) maybe a rare exception sure so maybe one could argue give clowns a pass yeah Because it's not a parody of blackness. <laughs> right. It's yeah, just and the clowns. history of clowning has nothing to do with that as far right. as I know. But, geez. But aside from actual clowns in their duty. If you're just a regular human who doesn't have curly hair and you mm-hmm. want to have prideful colors, don't do it with a, a fro wig, please. It's, it's please interesting, don't. too, because that's such a specific example. And it, it makes me think about... Um, the way that pride tends to be more of a white space, mm-hmm. at least the really big events. And like, maybe that's like to some, I really, I really want to be cautious about what I say about it, but it, it seems like, like that may be more of just like a common experience in certain cities or in certain liberal cultures that it tends to be more of a white space, but it, it depends because there are so many smaller BIMPOC spaces that exist 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably just like what you're describing, mm-hmm. I believe is true, but came more out of, what am I trying to say? Came more out of the way that culture is appropriative and and white people's place in that. Because if we're looking at origin stories of pride, like looking at New York, it was mm-hmm. very diverse. And mm-hmm, the people mm-hmm. at the front were black and brown. Marsha P. Johnson and other of folks names who I can't yeah. remember, which is embarrassing. Uh, Sylvie Rivera? Thanks. There's, that's another person, too. Right. Yeah, I think it was Marsha Johnson and Sylvie Rivera. Yeah. yeah. Um, so pride was not white. But I do believe it basically is now. And so that's, yeah, that's, yes, that was and, what I was getting at. Right. And the reasons for that, I, th- I think, are just because of commodification and appropriation, basically. Mm-hmm. Which are cornerstones of white culture. <laughs> right, Money because colonialism. And taking things from other people. <laughs> well, because colonialism is a cornerstone of a lot of Western Europe, which right. means it's going to be a cornerstone of white culture. Mm-hmm. Which made its way over to the New World and of course. et cetera, et cetera, to Canada. And, and a lot of those colonial sort of traditions or ideas about, like, oh, I've discovered, quote unquote, this amazing new fun thing to do. Let's yeah. all do it. And, mm-hmm. and maybe not taking the time to appreciate or understand the context that it's coming from, mm-hmm. why people do it, or how that thing can be shared or um, appreciated respectfully. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even the terms shared and appreciated, I've never, I, have, I can't think of an example um, where that's necessarily happened, where it has been super respectful. Um, but I'm I'm sure they exist. Yeah, yeah. What is this cultural sharing? This respectful cultural sharing? I I, wonder, I mean I'm sure it exists. I wonder somewhere. if coffee would be an example. Hard res- to say though because it's uh, coffee is farmed in plantation style, hmm. and if you look at places in the Caribbean and mm-hmm. whatnot in their history at Haiti, sure, you know, sure. and the histories of those exports and crops. Mm-hmm. They are just so tied up in exploitation and slavery <laughs> that's yeah. hard to say. But but maybe maybe like socially speaking, coffee is a good example right. of a thing that is really shared well across many cultures. Right, in that it wasn't part of a religious ceremony necessarily, um, or that if maybe it, it was though. I'm, well, I'm there, thinking about cacao. There are definitely cultures where there are coffee products used in religious ceremonies, but yeah. it wasn't the religious ceremony that we were trying to emulate. Right there, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's it's that kind of thing. It's being able to say like, you can take mindfulness out of religion as long as you're not making a mockery of prayer. Like that kind of an idea hmm. is what I'm getting at. Can you? Say that in a slightly different, a different way. way. I'm not so, sure I understand what you mean. Okay, so when I think about um, different kinds of prayer, and I think about, because I mean, maybe this is getting colored um, by the idea of Christianity, where prayer is about talking to a deity. Mm-hmm. I've typically thought of um, ritual, like the ritual of meditation, or even potentially casting a spell, depending on what kind of spell, or potentially praying in a church. Like a lot of these rituals that we have culturally that are very different from each other tend to have some similarity of, of grounding ourselves and touching base with something divine. Right. So it's like being able to touch base with divinity, I think has a lot to do with having like an openness of, of awareness. And so maybe this is just colored by my own idiosyncratic ideas of ritual and, and connecting with the divine. Sure. Um, but as an atheist who does not really connect with the divine, I feel like mindfulness is a way of sort of um, drinking the coffee without having the ceremony. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I get that now. Thank you for asking me to elaborate because often I like make these leaps in my mind and people listening are like, what is Victor talking about? <laughs> I mean, it could have just been me. But <laughs> sure. Sure. And it could have just now been... Now we'll be sure everyone got it. <laughs> right. Sure. I'm sure that's just my fear that I make these leaps of reasoning. Now you're very coherent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, oh, I, I'm curious to ask you about the association between substance use and pride because we talked about we talked about straight folks coming and getting super drunk, party culture, and right, all and that. party culture and all that. But tell me more about how that how that um, intersects with like queer folks using substances. Yeah. Well, I think it. it I mean, I'm not the first person to talk about this, but like my 
my like my sadness around this is that I think queer folks are inundated with with substance abuse mm. and it's because one one of the only places that we could meet up were in environments where it was a drinking establishment of some sort like that's right. deeply embedded in I would I would feel pretty comfortable saying like global queer cultures like mm-hmm. you meet in bars um sure and then knowing what we do now about the intersection of substance use and mental health mm-hmm. um uh, us folks are struggling more for for a lot of obvious reasons and are you know persecuted and the cumulative effect of growing up in a world that says you should die or says you are hateful totally um that God hates you, et cetera. It, yeah, all the all the things like that. Uh, then then this party culture becomes like a mainstay. It's like the place where you can let all that go, and you can just. I mean, like I, I'm thinking of of like this is corny. I'm thinking of like queer as folk episodes, and how much of that TV show um, circled around partying and mm-hmm. doing drugs and drinking mm-hmm. and that that's how people got together and met each other and like for me as a person who can't drink a lot and doesn't enjoy drinking very much um it's always felt very alienating mm-hmm. like i'm just a person who can't imbibe a lot of alcohol that's my constitution yeah. and i've known that since i was relatively young and and so i would you know choose to be sober the majority of the time when I was going out with people and it's, it's just isolating. Like I, you know, it's like you can't, you can't connect and that doesn't even take into consideration folks who are sober because they are, are in recovery. Like, it's just, I, I wish that I wish there were more sober spaces. I wish there were more social activities that involved dance that didn't automatically include being wasted. Yeah. And, um, and this isn't to get down on or uh, be hard on people who enjoy drinking and like mm-hmm. have responsible, um, balanced Practices, relationship sure. to that. You know, I'm, I'm very pro do what you want, <laughs> including <laughs> substances. But, um, when a culture or a group of people's like one of their main outlets has to include that, then I just... I just don't think it's the best. Yeah, that's fair. And there is also that, um, like, I'm glad you tied it into the amount of stress and fear that can happen around a queer identity. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, we know that those sorts of things impact mental health and that sometimes it's having poor mental health that leads to substance abuse as well. Yeah, there are, there are several vicious cycles yeah. that, that lead to a queer culture that has a very strong... Um, use of of alcohol and drugs as part of it. In some ways, I feel like it's the substance abuse that was the bridge between queerness and straight folks. That that we could all get wasted together? We could all get wasted together. Well, I mean, that's the thing about alcohol and other substances it's that it's it's the great uniter it's the great equalizer like everybody's a a a regular person at the end of the day when they're drunk and on the dance floor kind of thing. I once had a straight friend who purports to be an ally um, say, you got to hand it to those gays. They they throw a good party. Yeah. And it just kind of encapsulates the exact thought I just had, which is like, oh, like if, if like nothing up to the drinking to excess got to a sense of equality, but this, this straight person got to the sense of equality after getting super wasted at pride. Like, I'm like... <laughs> Well, I guess like, you like, got there. Like, I don't know there, about the gays, but, but they, they do can throw party, a good party well. Yes. Exactly that. Yeah. Like, the, I, you know, I <laughs> don't usually hold with foreign food, but this lamb spread's quite good. Sorry, that was a reference to, to Sam Gamgee. Um, the point I'm making is... <laughs> It's the like Lord the, of the Rings? Yes. Good. Very I'm good. so glad that we had to clarify the name of the franchise I was referencing, that the character wasn't enough. But I had to. I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you. Somewhere my brother's like, what do you mean you didn't know that reference? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah. I think we covered everything. I was going to ask what role does Pride have for who it is for, but I think we talked a lot about like reaffirming 
a sense of I'm I'm a good person and I'm I'm a person who cares a lot about equality and I'm a person who cares a lot about diversity and like clearly I'm not homophobic because I attend this event rather than examining behaviors and going like how is homophobia alive in me because like when I talk to folks about racism and and misogyny and things like that I do my very best not to assign people traits to say this person is a misogynist or this person is a racist and instead say things like this person says a lot of racist things or this person um, does does things that 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 disproportionately or adversely affect femmes or queers or whatever. So in in the same breath, I would say it's not that a lot of allies showing up are in any way bad. Like I'm I'm happy that allies come out to Pride. Really genuinely happy. It's just a question of centering. I would say is my biggest biggest concern. And past that, if the if the role that Pride plays for straight folks and allies is going to be reaffirming a sense of like anti-homophobia and anti-transphobia, then like let that be something that folks use to evaluate their decisions, their their behaviors, and the things they say. And hopefully it's a yearly reminder that we can all take a little time and like be a little more mindful of what we're actually saying and how we're actually moving through the world and ask ourselves the question, like, how is this bigotry still alive in the habits we have and the things we've heard or internalized? That's why it's so important to look at who is this for, though, because mm-hmm. if you are centering the people that ought to be centered, then the rest <laughs> falls into place, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Like, it's basically like you started off on the right foot, then you can walk well, you know? And I also just want to take a second to shout out Erica Hart, because the mm-hmm. reason why I think about this question of who is it for is entirely because of them. Well, yeah, pretty much entirely. And um, anyone who wants to learn at the deep, learn about the deep intersections of race and um, queerness, because uh, Erica is a, a completely amazing sex educator person um, with a master's in it, actually, not that these things are always needed, but... Yeah. So um, you got to center the people who the things are about. You know, if if um, if a space is for black people, like I'm allowed to be in that space, but I'm light skinned. So I need to pay attention to how much I'm centering myself. Like sometimes I need to sit down. Sometimes I need to be shutting up more and letting other people who are more impacted be the center of that because the folks who are in the most danger are not me. Mm-hmm. I experience danger. My life is all what it is, but it's not the same as another person who is right. darker skinned. And I often ask folks at CKV, Colorful Kingsters of Vancouver, which I run um, and which I founded. Um, I often ask folks to speak from lived experience. So right. if, if one person in that group is talking about something that's exclusively Southeast Asian and you're not Southeast Asian, police try not to have an opinion about it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if someone darker than you is talking about colorism, Mm -hmm. police try not to have like, like all the opinions that take up all the space. Yeah. Like it's okay to like ask a question, I guess, but to a large extent, that group is not to answer your questions. That, that group is more about organizing and like talking about our issues and finding camaraderie from other people that struggle with the same issues. Mm-hmm. People don't go into those spaces to do the emotional labor of explaining why, why things could be better in their life specifically. Although what I've found is that a lot of folks when dealing with other POCs are actually quite kind in offering a lot of emotional labor for that. Yeah, there's a certain slack that you, that you cut, cut for people. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I actually had, I had an experience recently with an elder um, black femme who didn't get my pronouns correct because I am also non-binary and I use they them pronouns and honestly it was a bit of a taxing conversation because they were feeling so guilty that they were like please give me grace like they literally said that wow and what I said to them in response was well you're you're black so I feel more comfortable going easier on you and and also you're an elder, so your experience of gender is different and mm-hmm. there's a learning curve there. Um, they worked in mental health, like they had some kind of psychological degree. So I feel like maybe I gave them a little too much grace because they maybe should have had more <laughs> context for these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. But whatever, you know, it, it, to the point is that like, yeah, in POC spaces, we'll 
will be a little chiller if like someone from another experience in another culture says something dumb that mm -hmm. they didn't realize was dumb or asks a question that is quote unquote basic or rudimentary right and, you know right. you just have more space for it totally and at the end of the day i have to ask myself like does this person know that they made a mistake and are they going to try to avoid making that mistake in future and if those both if both of those things are true i try to be as least frustrated and angry about it as possible because it's like they already know they screwed up and they're going to try and do better in future and that's really like a hundred percent of the job done there's like nothing more that my anger will produce for me in a productive or constructive way i think that's that's pretty healthy for in the moment stuff oh but there's the key right in the moment stuff i didn't say i was successful i said i try not to be angry and i try to be as unfrustrated as possible yes Yes. The, sa the same way I try not to give people death glares when they like immediately start talking about some feature of mine that has been overly exoticized for my whole life. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but pride. <laughs> oh, pride. <laughs> Do you have any closing thoughts on pride now that we've talked it to death? I mean, I... My closing thoughts are that I hope that Pride continues to evolve and become mm -hmm. more unique and political and actually re-centers queerness. Because mm -hmm. I think maybe in so many ways what we've been saying this whole time is that the current iterations of these celebrations and sometimes marches are not. They're right. not doing it. Right. And so... I'll feel more enthused to participate if if I if I feel like I'm with my actual people yeah. and that we're there for a cause, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's why it's Pride Month and why there are so many events and then there's one big parade that is I maybe I shouldn't call it the petting zoo, but it, it very oh. much it very much feels like I don't know. It might just be that like when I marched, I typically marched in like kink attire and everyone was like sticking out their ass like, like hit my ass, hit my ass. No, no, no. I really would have to negotiate that first. This is not fulsome. They're basically telling their friend to hold their beer while they go and like bend over and try to get me to hit their ass. And it's like, that's not, that's one, that's not how you interact with a parade. And two, that's not appropriate. But this is another reason why like, like too much substance at these events right right, like right. people are are pushing themselves in ways that just don't make a lot of sense like is that the time to try out spanking really <laughs> like, like when you're wasted at pride are you going to be like stranger are you going to be like strafing sideways as the parade moves while i spank you like how is that how did you envision this working in your mind <laughs> step step smack let's get a rhythm going step step <laughs> smack <laughs> It'll be like marching with a drum, except the drum would be the ass. Hmm. <laughs> I like that both of us are, like, enjoying this hypothetical now. <laughs> All right, we should probably sign off. Okay. But thank you so much for listening. Should I say my website or something? Yes, or? definitely. You should just promote yourself. Okay, so I have a website, jazzgoldman.com. That's uh, also where you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and I do music. I mentioned performance art stuff. So Ooh, you can whoop. also hear my new single, uh, Urban Decay, with DJ Reverend Dollars. We are jazzrev.bandcamp.com. That's cute. I like that. I like that that's the contraction is Jazz Rev. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Right? And of course, you can find all my stuff on intimatevictor.com or victorsalmon.com. It takes you to the same place. <laughs> you can find the podcast at intimatepodcast.com. You can follow me on Facebook. Come follow me on Facebook. <laughs> I think I'm at facebook.com slash intimatevictor now. I used to be slash intimate interactions. And then at a certain point, I was like, nah, I should make my brand the same everywhere. <laughs> so it's intimatevictor everywhere. It's intimatevictor.com. It's intimatevictor slash intimatevictor on Facebook. It's at intimatevictor on Instagram, Twitter. There's all the things. That's why I had to stick with my name, just because that's what I'd put on all my media handles anyway, and I'm hobbling my career together. So Yeah, it's it's a lot of work to just try and be like, hey, I would like to offer you free education on things like consent. I think it would be easier than that. <laughs> you'd think you'd think it would be easier to give things away, but it's actually really hard. One, people don't care. And Are you saying it's not easy being easy? Hmm. I am very easy. I will have you know. I believe you have personal experience of this. Yeah. Yeah.
and takes on... one to know one, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> you mean like a complete slut? <laughs> yes, that is what I mean. I'm sorry, I try and make it a point not to flirt with people on my podcast, but I think if I've already slept with those people, I kind of make an exception. <laughs> and now I've officially come out as slut to the world in a media way, which feels good anyway. <clears throat> That's good. Yeah. I've also been eating tomatoes this whole time, so it's going to be like random splotchy sounds. Juicy. <laughs> now you've got me thinking about Lizzo again. You're welcome. <laughs> also, everyone go listen to Lizzo. Yeah, Lizzo's She's fucking pretty amazing. Great. Lizzo is pretty great. <laughs> All right. And that is how it... <laughs> And that is how we will end the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. It ain't my fault that I'm out here getting loose. Gotta blame it on the goose. Gotta blame it on my juice, baby. Yeah, yeah, he. Yeah, yeah, he. Yeah, yeah, he. Yeah, yeah, blame it on my juice. Blah, blah, blame it on my juice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.